to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we were supposed where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to a woman, the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. And he, took some, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. 
But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The word of the Lord. Thank you so much. Uh, it's good to be with you all this morning. My name is Reed, and uh, Jonathan mentioned that I'm a, a friend of grace and peace. And uh, that may be true, but y'all are a friend to us, that's for sure, um, both in, uh, in our ministry at Clemson. You guys have been praying for us and supporting that work for a number of years, and we're so thankful for your ministry with us, the work the Lord's doing on that campus. Uh, he is using you in that process. It's fun to see a number of our uh, alumni, former Clemson RUF students who are here with you, and I think there's a whole bunch who are about to come in over the summer, going to be a part of your congregation, and that's exciting. Uh, also, just Tim is a friend of mine, and Joe Dennessy, who's about to be here. Joe's been a friend of mine for the last eight years, and I'm excited that he's going to be in this area. You're getting a great assistant pastor in Joe and uh, his wife, Melissa. They're great. So friendship is, uh, that's a good word to, to put with that. I, I am so thankful to be a friend of Grace and Peace. All right, we're looking at this passage in Acts this morning, and uh, the story of Acts, it, it's a great read, isn't it? And it's an amazing story, the whole book. The story of Acts is the story of Jesus building his church, uh, building his church and growing his church in the world. It is a beautiful, multicultural church commissioned to preach the good news of a cross-cultural Savior. And we have in this chapter three stories of three folks basically joining the early church. And I want to walk through those stories because I, what I hope that you'll hear as we consider this passage is some of the work that you've been called into in this community, uh, that you'll see some similar themes, hopefully, of some of the ministries of your church. Uh, and you'll even hopefully hear some of your own stories in this passage as we consider these three different accounts uh, of folks coming into the church. It's three people coming from three very different places. It's the story of the wealthy intellectual seeker. It's the story of the possessed and oppressed child slave. And it's the story of the blue-collar failure and how they all met Jesus and the work that he did in their lives individually. Let me get us into this passage by thinking about this. In 1983, John Scully was the president of Pepsi. Now, if you remember, in the 80s, Pepsi was kind of uh, doing really well in the soda game. They were, um, them and Coke still are back and forth, of course, but at the time in the 80s when Scully was the president, they were one of the most successful 500 company, uh, Fortune 500 companies of all times, and he was the boss. And so in 1983, he gets a job offer, and a very risky job offer, uh, when this young weirdo tech guy named Steve Jobs comes to John Scully and he offers him a job. Uh, to help run his new company that he had just started a few years before in his garage. And this was way before tech startups were cool. They were not cool. And he, it was very risky, right, to leave Pepsi to go work for this little startup named Apple. But Steve Jobs convinced him, and he said that there was something so much better for him to give his life to. And this is uh, the alleged quote from Jobs to Scully. He said, listen, John, 
Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? Or do you want to have a chance to help change the world? It's a pretty good offer, isn't it? I would have taken that job. And he did. And the rest is history, as they say. But it's such a good line. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? Or do you want to help change the world? I think Jesus is offering us something similar, something so much bigger with that in mind. And it makes us ask some hard questions of our own lives. What are we doing? What are we doing with our lives? Are we just contributing to the sugar water game? Or are we a part of something that's changing the world? And if you're a Christian this morning, I I want you to know that you're a part of something that is changing the world. You've been invited into a story of God at work in this world, changing lives, changing families, changing entire cultures. And your church is, is... dead center in the middle of that mission. And so this is your mission. This is your commission from Jesus himself. And so as we hear these stories, I hope some faces come to mind of the ways God is at work, changing the world even through you, through grace and peace. So let's first consider the story of the wealthy intellectual seeker. Who is this woman? Her name, as we know her, is Lydia. This could have been her actual name or maybe a reference to the region she was from, like the Lydian lady. Here's what we know about Lydia. One is that she was a hard-working woman who did really well in her business. She would most likely have been very wealthy because purple dye was a high commodity in that day, and the region that she was from was known for its dye, and she was a merchant who traveled around selling these purple clothes. In today's terms, Lydia would be like a high-end regional sales manager for Louis Vuitton, and she's from like the most wealthy neighborhood in the city, right? That's kind of who this woman was. Here's what we also know about Lydia, is that she uh, was interested in religion. Notice that Paul and the others found Lydia with some women praying outside of the city. Most likely she was with both Jews and non-Jews. She was probably not a Jew herself, but she's gathered around religious people. She was spiritually interested. She was hanging out with these folks and and praying with them. So probably she would have maybe been a moral person, religiously minded. We would call her maybe a seeker, an intellectual seeker. She had had questions, but she hadn't yet found the answers to all of her questions. She hadn't yet found what she was looking for or who she was looking for. But at the end of verse 14, we see that he found her. Jesus wrote himself into Lydia's story. Because Jesus loves seekers. Jesus loves wealthy and devoted intellects. Jesus loves women. And I don't say that as a joke or a throwaway comment. I think it's really important because, as you know, in that day, women were not treated well in that society. And the fact that Luke, who's writing this story, emphasizes her work and her wealth goes to show you that the Christianity that Jesus had established is itself countercultural. God has always gifted and called women to minister and serve and lead in his church. And you see that in the story of Lydia. Women like Lydia who loved the Lord and whose heart he opened to receive the message of the gospel. It says it right there in the text. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. In other words, Paul preached... But Jesus illuminated. Paul turned on the flashlight, but Jesus shined the light into Lydia's otherwise darkened heart. 
She was a seeker, but she was a sinner like all of us. And like Lydia, we cannot see unless God opens our eyes. And this has really been a theme through Acts all along the way up to this point. Luke has repeatedly said things like, as many as the Lord appointed believed. Uh, To quote one commentator, John Stott, he said that, yes, the message was Paul's, but the saving initiative was God's alone. We see that Lydia responded to the gospel of Jesus. She responded in faith that he was who he said he was and that he was the very one that she had been seeking with her intellectual mind and spiritual interest all along. Now I'm going to pause at the end of each of these stories and give a lesson, uh, one, one takeaway for us. And I think the lesson out of Lydia's story is, is simply this. God has to open hearts. God has to open hearts. When it comes to evangelism or sharing your faith, or confronting a friend, or dealing with something very difficult, God is the one who opens hearts. You may say the words, but God is the one who opens hearts to receive the message. You turn on the flashlight, but God is the one who directs the beam. And this is particularly encouraging for me on the college campus, where we are certainly engaging with students who are all over the place spiritually, some who are interested in religious things, others who are not. We have to believe as we approach that campus every day that God is already at work long before we show up. For a long time, I really believed that my ability to communicate the gospel message carried the weight of life and death. Did you hear that? My ability to communicate the gospel marriage carried the weight of life and death. That if I didn't do it right, that if I didn't have all the right answers or say it in the right way, or someone didn't confess faith in Christ, then that was actually on me, that I did it wrong. And I believe that for far too long, and I wonder if some of you are there. And it's actually part of your hesitancy to engage with your non-Christian friends or family members, because you're just worried that you're not going to say it right or do it right. Some of you need to be freed, and I need to be freed from the burden that we can actually change people. We can't. God is the one who opens hearts. And that gives us tremendous freedom because he alone holds the power. Lydia believed because God opened her eyes to see what she had been searching for all along was found only in Christ himself. And she was baptized. She and her entire household, that would have included probably both servants and children. And as we see that God opened up her heart, then Lydia opened up her home to the church You know, the church in Philippi, the the little New Testament letter that Paul wrote to Philippi, in all likelihood, it begins right here. Lydia was a charter member, and the church began right there in her home, perhaps. But she's not the only one who joined the church at this point. Now you have the story of the possessed child slave, someone else who encounters Christ, who could not be more different than Lydia. I want to note some of the distinctions that we see in these stories The story maybe was surprising to you, a little upsetting, as we heard it read this morning. Uh, While the missionaries sort of moved on from Lydia to a new location, they began to be followed by a young girl who was possessed by a demon. The Bible says that this woman had a spirit of divination. Now, this would describe someone who has a spirit often associated with the ancient mythic temple oracles. The Greeks would call these people ventriloquists. Because they made seemingly like telepathic predictions or prophecies in strange or foreign voices. Some really disturbing stuff here. 
So it may seem odd to you that what she says is actually true. Like she says something that's true, which is weird, right? She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So why would someone possessed with a demon actually be saying something that sounds true? Well, I think part of it is this is a classic strategy of the evil one in the ways that he works, the ways that he likes to sow seeds of discord and confusion, conflict. I think Satan likes to confuse the Christians with the crazies. And you see it even in our own day in so many different ways to link the message of Christ with some sort of occult-like confusion. Satan is the chief of confusion. And so Paul is so frustrated at this whole situation that he casts the demon out. Something the apostles would do during this age of the beginning of the church being established in the world just like Jesus had done many times before. Now, I don't love the translation of verse 18 where it says Paul became annoyed. And it's nothing wrong with the translation. It's what we read into that word. Did you kind of giggle when we read through that and like Paul became annoyed and just cast out a demon? We think of the word annoyed like college students getting annoyed with their roommates leaving dirty dishes stacked up for two weeks, right? That's what I deal with in my job on a daily basis. That's what we think of when we think of annoyed. We think of annoyed of like my roommate, my wife who's here in the back, gets annoyed with me when I like, this happens way too often, when, when like I, I run out of a product in our home, right? Like I finish the box of cereal and I don't write it on the list. I just throw it away. She gets annoyed with me, so annoyed. She wants to cast that demon out. That's, I think that's what we think of when we see the word. But the, the Greek here for that word actually also means troubled or disturbed or even grieved. Think about it now. Paul becomes grieved. He becomes grieved and he commanded the demon to come out of her in the name of Jesus. And it did. Because even demons answer to Jesus. The text doesn't necessarily tell us that the girl came to faith in Jesus through all of this, but we can infer simply from sandwiching this story between these two other conversion stories that it is very likely that she became a part of the Philippian church. But don't miss the cross-cultural call of Jesus. Let's compare these two women. Lydia is a respectable businesswoman But the slave girl is hardly a member of the human community at all at this point. Lydia is a moral and religious person, but the slave girl is completely alienated from any moral truth. Lydia has so much to be proud of, but the slave girl is completely marginalized. A non-person with no dignity in that day. Lydia has a moderate amount of social and economic power. The slave girl is completely powerless over her condition. But this young girl was enslaved, not just by a demon, but even by these evil men who are essentially trafficking her for their own financial gain. This really isn't too far removed from the modern day trafficking stories that we hear about and read about. And some of you are involved in organizations uh, to help fight against. This girl is a victim of her economic situation and she's been taken advantage of by terrible men. And then Jesus writes himself into her story. So here's the lesson for this one. The gospel is for everyone. Yes, Jesus loves the wealthy intellectual seeker, but he also loves the oppressed and the marginalized. Jesus loves the alienated and the enslaved, and he works toward their deliverance. 
both in the physical enslavement here and also in spiritual bondage. Don't miss that God does, God does not just care about our spiritual needs. He cares about our physical needs, our um, psychological or mental health. He cares and he draws near. And so here's the third narrative where we see both of those things in play as well. It's the story of the blue-collar failure. So after the girl was delivered from her demons and the human, her human oppressors were angry. Why were they angry? Because the Christians just took all their money away, right? They took away their revenue stream. So they worked with the local magistrates to have them arrested, claiming again that these men were doing something wrong because of their belief in Jesus. And so Paul and Silas were now unjustly beaten and wrongly imprisoned. But once again, what man meant for evil, God intended for good. Because even though they shut these men into confines, they couldn't shut their mouths from singing hymns and praying prayers. Isn't that amazing? After all they've been through, unfairly accused, unjustly arrested, undeservedly beaten, and now unreasonably imprisoned. And then verse 25 says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and they were singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening. And then there was a great earthquake. And God delivers Paul and Silas miraculously from their imprisonment through this earthquake. But they, they didn't run. I would have run. Like, I would have ran very quickly. And I'm not very quick. But in that situation, I would have run. They didn't run. They stayed put. Why? They were free. But they were so filled with compassion for someone else who was still in bondage that they stayed. The prison guard. The prison guard who was planning to end his own life because he knew that the freedom of these prisoners meant his condemnation. So who is this guy? Most likely the Roman jailer would have been a retired soldier, a war veteran who's now spending his remaining years working a low-paying government job, watching over the prisoners. In other words, he's just a normal dude under a lot of pressure. That's who this guy is. He's a blue-collar employee who just failed big time, and he feels it deeply. And so he reaches for his sword. It's a gruesome scene with an amazing intervention because Jesus shows up. And he writes himself into this man's story because Jesus loves average people too. Jesus loves average people even in those moments where they feel like more than average failures. Look at verse 28. Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. It's interesting here, the word saved has the same root as the one used by the possessed girl earlier. Salvation, simply meaning deliverance. So what is the blue-collar failure asking for? He's actually really asking, who can get me out of this mess? He may or may not be asking for the answer for eternal life. Think about his situation he may literally be asking, can someone help me out right now because I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. 
And then the missionaries answer actually on two levels. They give him the answer for who can meet his needs right now and who can provide real life. And they say Jesus can. Jesus can meet you right now and Jesus can save you. You see, Jesus enters this man's story on two levels. A temporary salvation from the condemnation that he dreads for his failures in life. And Jesus provides the ultimate and permanent salvation from the condemnation before God that he deserves for his sins, just like you and I. I love the image from C.S. Lewis where he says in one of his books that if Hamlet, you know, Hamlet is a character, if Hamlet were to ever want to get to know his playwright Shakespeare, then it would take Shakespeare writing himself into Hamlet's story. Does that make sense? The only way Hamlet can ever know Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes himself into Hamlet's story. Friends, your creator has written himself into your story. Jesus has showed up. Wherever you find yourself this morning, what, whatever you're in the middle of, the things that you are going through, what I want you to do is to find Jesus there too. Because he's with you. There's nothing that this world can throw at you that you cannot find a refuge in Jesus from. And as we know, he may not save us from our circumstances, but he will meet us in them. Whether it's condemnation or fear, ruined reputation, being left out or rejected, failing a relationship, losing your job, making some terrible mistake, addicted, depressed, confused, despairing, might Jesus write himself into those storylines too, of course. He can meet you right where you are, even this morning. And so if you find yourself in this story, I want you to find Jesus there too. See that he comes to meet the individual needs of individual people just like you. That Jesus is the answer for all of Lydia's intellectual questions. That Jesus is the deliverance for the slave girl's desperate bondage. And Jesus is the purpose and redemption offered for even an average man's failures. The gospel is for everyone. Though these three people are worlds apart, economically, socially, ethnically, or otherwise, they have one common Savior who loves them all, who brings them together in one common body. But he does it only in this way. Through his body, being broken for their brokenness. It's amazing that when Jesus was brought forward to be crucified, the Roman soldiers mocked him with, of course, a crown of thorns, but something else also. A purple robe. Purple. Like what Lydia would sell, and they mistreated him. And they falsely imprisoned Jesus on false claims, just like they did Paul. And they beat him, and they hung him on a cross. Jesus was a colossal failure in the world's eyes. But what man meant for evil, God intended for good for the salvation of many because his purple bruises were healed. His perceived failure became a story of cosmic redemption and his imprisonment, his condemnation, actually meant freedom for those of us who were in real bondage. Friends, Jesus sees you. 
and he's written himself into your story. Even at a great cost. To love you. To meet you in your loneliness. To meet your longings. To satisfy your questions. And to set you free. And this is an invitation to trust him. Whether it's for the 500th time or the first. To trust that Jesus really is the one who delivers. Who meets you right where you are. And I close with this other invitation. Because I think this is a great encouragement For those of you who are Christians, and sometimes you're wondering, uh, is your labor really worth it? Like all the ministries that you're a part of, all the conversations that you seem to have, even in your own home, is it worth it? So I want to end with this encouragement. If you're a believer, I want you to miss, not miss that there was always someone else with Jesus in these stories, right? There's someone that he used to deliver this message. If you've ever thought that you would like to be a part of something bigger than yourself, if you've ever thought that you would like to be in on a mission that can help change the world, if you were a Christian, look no further. You're not just selling sugar water. You are a part of something that is changing the world, turning the world upside down from Philippi to the upstate of South Carolina with one message of hope and redemption and reconciliation. You are a part of that story Several years ago, uh, Kelly and I, my wife and I, went to a play um, in Charlotte. This was about 10 years ago, probably, and we were reading in the description that this was like an interactive play. It was like one of these like pseudo-murder mystery comical things, and uh, in the description, it said that we would, as an audience, play armchair detectives. We didn't know what that meant, so we thought that there would be some like technology in the arm of the chair where you like press buttons like it's like a whodunit thing and you're like, he did it and I'm pressing B. That's not what it meant. You know quicker than I do. Uh, the, the phrase that we were just unfamiliar with at the time is an armchair detective is, is more so someone who's sort of sitting on the sideline. It's kind of like Monday morning quarterbacking, right? Looking for like someone else to do the work. You have an opinion about what they're doing over there. I think sometimes we think as Christians that participating in missions or evangelism is like being a Christian armchair detective. Like we'll leave that to to some of those people over there. Those missionaries or those other denominations who just do it better than us. Those campus ministries, they can do that sort of stuff. But this is an invitation to be a part of the story. To be a part of the act that's going on on the stage in front of us. I think actually in the Reformed community, if I'm honest, in the Reformed community, we can be some of the most passive. But the truth is, Reformed Christians should be the most evangelistic. Why? Because we believe that God is the one who changes hearts. That brings a lot of freedom. We should also be the most prayerful. Why? Because we believe that God is the one who changes hearts. And we should be the most welcoming. Why? Because we believe the gospel is for everyone. And so here's the encouragement in the final lesson. God can use anyone to show that the gospel is for everyone. We see in these three stories different people that God used to make the message of Jesus known. And we see three different methods of evangelism. I don't know what you think about evangelism, but often I think of it as like a canned presentation you got to say these right words in this right order and get this right verse across, and it's like a canned thing, right? It's not, that's not a bad way to do it, but it's not the only way. 
I want you to see that in these stories there were three different methods of evangelism. And this is to encourage you as we close. Lydia came to faith through a small group Bible study. You can invite your non-Christian friends to join you in small groups. And pray for the Lord to work through his word. The slave girl was delivered, not through a canned gospel presentation, but through someone standing up and fighting for injustice in the world with the gospel of Jesus. You can partner with great organizations that work to bring justice into this world, and many of you already do. Justice for victims of sex trafficking or sexual abuse or victims of racism or injustices in the world. These are gospel-centered causes. They're not just some social calls out there. These are gospel-centered causes. And finally, how did the prison guard come to faith in Christ? I love this one. Through seeing Christians worship even while they were suffering. In the worst moments of their lives, when things were going terribly for them, they were praying and they were singing. He heard that. He witnessed their faith amidst their suffering. And so who did he turn to when his life turned upside down? The people that he just saw worship and pray even though their life had been turned upside down. And he turned to them and said, what must I do to be saved? And so in these three stories, you don't have one canned gospel presentation. You have Christians living a consistent life of faith and engaging anyone and everyone with the good news of Christ as they had an opportunity. So I'll just say, Christians, the world is watching us. They hear our prayers. They see our worship. They see us standing up or not standing up for things that are wrong in the world. They're observant of your small groups and your relationship with people in your church and in your community. And every single one of these endeavors is another opportunity to be a witness and maybe even a martyr for the cause of Christ, for our Savior who has written himself into our stories, for his glory and for our good. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we do give you thanks that you show up. And that you meet the needs of individuals right where they are. We see it in this, these stories. We see these great truths of how you have met so many folks as you were building the church in Philippi. And, and that work has not ended. You are working the same way in our community. You're working the same way in this room, meeting the individual needs of individual people in this room. I pray that we would be able to look up and see the ways that you are at work. Uh, that you would be glorified to use our labors, that they would not be in vain, but that you would expand your kingdom, even here in Greenville, in the upstate, in Clemson, and all throughout this region of the country and beyond. We pray that you would do that. And we pray that even now as we celebrate the ways that you have written yourself into this story, in a profound way, you drew so near that you went to the cross for us, Lord, we forget this. We forget this so much. I pray that you would nourish and strengthen us with another vivid reminder of your love as we approach your table. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.